Welcome to the Raw and Wild Hearts, a place where the raw, the unfiltered, the wild hearts gather to celebrate triumphs and hardships, learn from each other, grow together, and break down a culture rooted in fear. We will talk, we will laugh, and we will lean on each other about everyday life experiences that we could all use a little support through, and then we'll bask in the wild, magical beings that we are. My philosophy is that by embracing the dark, we may just let in the light. I am your host, Lori Rising, healer, educator, writer, adventurer, retreat leader, birth defender, and animal enthusiast and activist, along with my wild heart sidekick kitty, Jesus the Brave. We'd like to invite you to get excited about the wild heart revolution. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. It's called Thoughtful Conversations About Whiteness with Good Friends and Cats. We will be exploring what it means to look at the white race in relation to racism, why it is uncomfortable for white people to talk about race, and how we are mostly uninformed and uneducated when it comes to discussions about race, even with the best of intentions. It is my hope to open up a conversation about this to normalize it so more conversations start happening, which will affect bigger change. I want to bridge the taboo gap by sharing experiences and truths to help us all discover where we may have been misled or misplaced in our own upbringing or experience. The cats are there because, as Davey has previously said when engaging in these conversations, cats make everything better. This episode was the most vulnerable I've been, and that is exactly what drives me to share it with the world. We as white people need to push past those feelings of vulnerability in regard to race and seek out the very best ways that we can implement change in a system entrenched in extreme bias and privilege. My guest shares very deep wounds as a result of racial trauma, and I'm so grateful to her for opening up in such a public platform to share her experience with us about the very real impact it has had on her life. Thank you for holding the space for her to put a voice to these wounds. Please do check out the very valuable resources listed below. I will tell you right now that since doing my own research for this interview, I've had several conversations that have led to others discovering the importance of becoming educated and talking with their children early on. I just returned from a powerful retreat experience where I offered my Awakening Your Life Force workshop. What we talked about most is how the reaction we may feel listening to another's experience can be a very helpful tool as a mirror or reflection of ourselves to explore. I encourage you to listen with an open mind and heart that is really willing to look past your own personal experience and into the much deeper wound racism has inflicted on our entire culture. I also want to chat about last week's episode with the incomparable Molly McCord. At the end of the episode is when I ask all my guests who their dream guests would be and why. It's always a fun way to end and offers very inspiring thoughts and people to check out. So... You know how when you think you know how to pronounce a name and then you see the name written and you realize maybe you've been doing it wrong, then you try out the written pronunciation and even though that feels wrong, you keep going. Well, I did that. In the process, I pronounced Shawnee Nicholas's name wrong, which led to Molly thinking she hadn't heard of her. Ah, Molly definitely has heard of her and admires Shawnee's work greatly in what she's doing for astrology. 
This is one of those times I wish I had gone through with the idea to hear a voice translation somewhere. So I apologize to Molly and Shawnee for not doing my due diligence, even though my intuition was screaming loud and clear too. And that just leads in big part to my conversation with Molly about developing and listening to our intuition. So lesson learned universe, you got me again. And thank you for your support in listening to these conversations. If you enjoy these raw and unfiltered talks, please share the podcast with your communities. Take just a couple of minutes to hit that star rating or leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. I mean, you don't even have to make a pesky account to do it. Everyone increases the algorithm, which gets the podcast into the ears of more people. You can also find us on Spotify, Pocket Casts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Deezer, Google, Android, and more. If you want to learn more about me and my offerings, check out the website, therawandwildhearts.com. I have a lot brewing with this new decade coming through. Like I mentioned earlier, I just returned from Hawaii where I offered my Awakening Your Life Force workshop. Not only that, but I helped four gorgeous women catch some waves by learning to surf, which I do couple with the workshop for very important reasons. I'm hoping to get the workshop piece on my website as a webinar within a couple of months. I also offer online consultations, so if you have Wi-Fi, we can connect. Look for my book about changing our culture and world through childbirth in late 2020, and I also continue to offer therapeutic treatments and childbirth classes in the Portland, Oregon area. And of course, I use what remaining time I have to keep bringing you fun and supportive podcast chats. I have another one in my series called Laughter is Medicine coming up with a fantastic comedian, and I'm starting another series called The Road to Rockin' Out, featuring amazing and talented musicians. There's also an episode coming up with Dr. Peter Borton about masculinity in our culture and a magical up-and-coming spiritual healer that you don't want to miss. And now, on to the show. My guest today is the founder of the Institute of Authentic Tantra Education, the first and only government-accredited professional training institute using the Tibetan five-element tantric practices for holistic sexual healing. Davy is an ACS certified sexologist, certified tantric healer, certified Reiki practitioner, certified meditation instructor, accomplished practitioner of Tibetan tantric Buddhism, and has been teaching meditation and personal growth workshops for two decades. She is an author and host of Sex is Medicine with Davy Ward podcast on iTunes and TuneIn.com. She has been featured as a Tantra and female sexuality expert in countless articles and over 30 different radio and television networks worldwide, including Playboy Radio, Men's Health Magazine, CBS, NBC, and Rogers TV, and the movie Sexology with Gabrielle Anwar, and Katherine Oxenberg. Please welcome Davey Ward. Hello, Davey. Welcome to the Raw and Wild Hearts podcast. Yay. Thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you for joining the Wild Heart Revolution. I like to start with a toast or a prayer. So to the Wild Heart Warriors in our light, especially in our dark and in all of our magic and glory, may we continue to elevate consciousness through humor, humility, gentle care, soul-wrenching growth, and ownership, and to us and to changing the world through awareness and education. Amen. Cheers. I have my tea. Cheers. I've got my tea. <laughs> oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> We're all settled in. So first of all, congratulations on your groundbreaking accomplishment. I'm so excited for you. The first and only accredited institution of tantric sexual healing. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. You worked so hard and you so deserve this recognition, Davey. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Um, Well, it was a team effort for sure. I couldn't have done it without all of my compadres uh, filling our roles. We're all pieces of the puzzle, but I, I was the, let's try and do this. So the spearhead of that particular project, and I'm delighted that it actually happened. Right. I mean, I remember when, back when we met 14 years ago, maybe. I feel like, was it 2003? I I feel like you had this vision then, you know, I feel like this was, no? (laughs) (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Maybe I just feel like this embodies you. And so just my remembrance of you is like, oh yeah, of course, that's Davey. Like, of course she's going to go for it and, and, and get it. And, um, That's hilarious. Nope, not even an inkling. <laughs> no clue whatsoever. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, <laughs> there's that. But I wanted to say I listened to your podcast, Sex is Medicine, last night, which is awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I took a walk around the neighborhood and I listened to Sexual Healing Through Shamanism. Oh, yeah. That's Gosh, a good it was so powerful. I mean, what a beautiful conversation about lineage, ritual, spirit, mm-hmm. divinity, healing. Like I was just, oh, it was, I was walking around in the rain and I was just feeling it. I was really feeling it. I haven't uh, connected with anyone since June. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that definitely lit a little fire in my soul. So I'm hoping that my uh, soul connection person is doing their work and they're coming soon because I'm ready to Magnetizing. have some plant medicine sexual healing over here. <laughs> you got, yeah. got me revved up for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's get to this episode. So we just had a little chat before we started and I was kind of letting you know my feelings a little bit, but I do, I feel intimidated to even begin this really important and crucial conversation today. It's like, I feel like it's not even my place since it's not my experience to talk about. And I I think that's in large part why we are where we are. Mm-hmm. right? It's difficult to be associated with such horrific realities, but that's where the education and learning becomes so vital in making permanent change. And I'm just so happy to be here with you, Davey. I feel like your clarity and knowledge and your passion in creating change is so inspiring. Thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation with me and really get into this, like I said, crucial topic. It's so important. Yeah quickly, let's talk about our history. So we met in a very rural white area that I had actually grown up in. And I had just moved back to be with my grade school sweetheart. And you, by my happy surprise, were living there, a soul sister, like spirit, magic, witchy mama that I was so delighted to be welcomed by with a few other of our friends in our group. You had been there for five years? By the time no, I- no, I only lived there. It's like, I think it was like maybe two and a half, three years total. I wasn't there for long. I have everything wrong about, about our history. <laughs> it was a long like, time ago. Everything. It was like 2003. You can remember that. <laughs> I was so blessed that you were there during my time there. It was, you know, there was nothing to do, right? And so we made our own magic. We would get together and have dinners and make music and laugh and dance. Oh, dance. Ooh, I still remember your dancing. So beautiful. But yeah, that's where, I mean, that's where I grew up as a very white area. Mm -hmm. What are your feelings about that area? You lived there for like two or three years. What was your experience there? 
Yeah, so I was really quite ignorant about the realities of racism until about 2015, when I discovered Robin's, actually it was her paper that she first published on white fragility. And it pinpointed what I had experienced my entire life, but did not have words for and did not cognitively understand what I was experiencing. So most of my life up until that point, yes, I experienced extreme violent abuse of racism, which we can talk about, and also the less obvious, just living in a white supremacist culture. But the way, and this is part of the way racism works, I thought it was because I was broken. I didn't understand that it was because the system is broken. Mm. So I internalized all of the messages of racial hatred is I'm defective, I'm dysfunctional because I'm black. That's the way it lived inside of me. Mm -hmm. And obviously I'm very, very light skinned. I'm biracial. My mom was Polish and Czechoslovakian. My father was of African descent. Um, but my parents divorced at a very young age when I was about five or six and I lived with my mom, my white mom. And so we lived in white neighborhoods and I was very socially conditioned through white society. Mm -hmm. So black and white are not just in, a, in the United States, they're not just hues and tones of our skin, they're totally different cultures. So culturally I was raised white and this has been both a blessing and an obstacle. And so growing up with any drop of black blood, like, like I will tell you growing up in white middle class and upper middle class society, that whole, like if you have a drop of black blood, you are, drop, you are black, that is accurate. I was viewed not as biracial, not as part black, but as black. That was how I was labeled. And I was told in no uncertain terms through all of my social interactions I was told in words by some people, but most of the way that we receive this message as black people is it's not verbally conveyed because that would be wrong, but it's the social cues and energetic and it's the subtleties that most people are not aware of, which is why we're having this conversation. Right. So I was told most often non-verbally just through social interactions that I was wrong, bad, broken, defective, dysfunctional because of my blackness. And if I could just erase my blackness so that white people couldn't recognize it, then I would be accepted fully into society. Did you have conversations with your mother about this? No, I, dude, no, no, no. How would I have conversations when I did not know or understand what was going on? Right. You don't know. That's the thing. You don't think, oh, this, like I was trying to, trying to say, it's not like, oh, this person is saying this to me and therefore they're bad. It's, oh, they're right. I'm black. I'm wrong. Oh. And the message is all pervasive. It's not just from my peers. It's in media. Right. It's, it's, it, it's happening at the level below the conscious mind. It's right. implicit and it's programmed into us from birth. Mm -hmm. So I did not question the message that I was defective I had been told that from the moment I was born, putting this in context, I was born in 1974. Mm -hmm. Interracial marriage was illegal in the entire United States until at least 1969. Mm -hmm. That's like five years. That's not enough time for there to actually like for people's consciousness to change. If I had been born five years earlier, I would have been illegal. Mm. 
illegal, not allowed to be alive. And for many people in that time, I wasn't. My, my grandmother, my mother's mother, did not want to attend my birth. Mm. Oh. That's the thing to understand about white supremacy. It's right. not an obvious message. It is the very air you breathe yeah. as a white person. Yeah. Your and I think privilege is the air that you breathe. Right. And, you know, I, I just read White Fragility. I know we chatted about that. You've read it as well. Mm -hmm. And wow, I think that she does such a fantastic job of helping people understand how it is everywhere. It is in us. I really appreciated that. And I really appreciated the fact that I, I, had, I took stock. I did a lot of thinking and I looked back over my life and I looked at very specific instances. And even when the discomfort would start coming, I would be like, wait a second, be with this discomfort and really understand it. And I just think that she did such a marvelous job of basically creating that vulnerability that we need to go into. We need to. And, and the most important point I think that she makes is that it is white people's job to be talking about their privilege. So right. you open the show by saying, it's not my place. It is your place. Right. As a white person, it is exactly your place to educate other white people about racism because they don't listen to us. I'll right. give you a perfect example. I'm a person of color. I've experienced racism from before birth. I've inherited the genetic trauma of all of my slave ancestors. It lives inside of me. Every breath I take is infused with it. But when I talk about white supremacy around white people, because my social demographic is largely white, they say, really, are you sure about that? Are you sure that you've experienced racism? Really? I've never experienced that. That's what oh. they say. I haven't experienced racism, so I don't know. So just the very, the very arrogance to question for a moment anything that a person of color has to say about their experience of race, particularly right. in the United States, the arrogance to question it, right. that is white supremacy. Yeah, I completely agree Of course agree with you don't that. recognize yeah. it. You're white. Mm -hmm. That's your privilege. Well, so then I started thinking back to like my childhood, right? When we really take on a lot of subconscious patterns. And so I thought back and I'm like, okay, I was raised in a very, very rural white area. And what I remember is I had Cabbage Patch dolls and I wanted a black Cabbage Patch doll. I never got one, but I wanted one. And so then the next thing I can remember is... When I was old enough, I actually started seeking out diversity. I wanted that in my life. I wanted to understand. I wanted to learn. I, I, it was kind of like this drive in me. And it's continued. Like I've, I, I am very involved in cultural birth and really love to travel the world. And then I started remembering like, well, what did, I, what did I actually learn when I was young? And what resonated with me the most in the book White Fragility was it was like, I thought, or I think the school of thought was that if you talk about race, that's racist. As a kid, I remember that. And so somehow that got put into my mind. Mm -hmm. You learn that as a kid, and then you take that into your adulthood, and you have a hard time talking about race because if you believe that as a child, that becomes a really deep-seated belief yeah. that that means that you're racist if you're talking about race. Mm -hmm. But Honestly, when this book, especially this book got brought to my attention, I was like, oh, okay, I can talk about whiteness. I can talk about that experience. I can relate to that experience much more. And so I, I really appreciated this. Mm -hmm. I appreciated the ability for me to be like, okay, I can really dive into this and open it up and not have that childhood thought. 
that somehow was put into my my head. Mm-hmm. So it's like giving you permission right. to examine. It's like it's it's and and an invitation, permission and an invitation, and also an imperative. We have to, if we ever want to eradicate, truly eradicate racism, you have to be willing to confront it. You can't heal a wound that you're unwilling to acknowledge. If I had yeah. like a huge splinter. Now, a perfect example, I actually had a, had a boil on my neck over Christmas, which is why I'm wearing this scarf. Never had one of those before. It was like insane. Yeah. And like, if I had kept ignoring it, it would have grown. I mean, it was huge. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that big. But if I kept ignoring it, it was just going to fill with infection and disgustingness until it either like gave me, I became septic or right. it exploded and caused a mess. Yeah. That is race, racism in America. It's the boil, <laughs> the festering, nasty, pus-filled boil that everyone's trying to ignore mm-hmm. that is causing so much pain and has caused a systemic infection yeah. in the entire society. Right. And just kind of talking about that, colorblindness, that's a big one as well. Like, well, I don't see color. I'm inclusive, you know, and that's where she's, she's really calling out the people that are progressive and say that they're inclusive and that they don't see color. And she's like, this is the biggest problem. And this is what's keeping racism so institutionalized. And I don't know why that was how I learned when I was young, but somehow maybe that's what I thought would be the best way to go about it since I didn't have a good education. Mm-hmm. So what we really need to be doing is especially talking to children before they ask, mm-hmm. right? Because by the time they ask, some seed has been planted. Well, absolutely. We learn from, as human beings, we're wired to learn from modeling. We watch. So, you know, I mean, if you think of a three-year-old, a three-year-old has no idea, is not able to like have this complex thought process, but they watch what mommy and daddy do. They watch what auntie and uncle do and they read body language and they read interactions. And so they don't understand the words, but they do understand the messages that are being passed back and forth because that is the way we're wired as human beings. Monkey see, monkey do, quite literally. Human see, human do. Mm -hmm. And so those messages, we don't understand where they came from. It's because it's implicit Mm -hmm. within us. They're messages that we picked up from our environment, from observing the social structures and social dynamics and just accept as truth. I'll give you an example. And this has to do with sexuality and not race because I work in the realm of sexuality, which is another area of like extreme dysfunction in our culture. But so I was watching the show and there was a, there, there was a study on like teenage teenagers having sex. And they said, and next up, we have our a new recent study that shows that teenagers are having le- less sex. Well, that's good news. Why is that good news? Why? But we just implicitly accept, oh yeah, it's it, this is bad and this is right. And we get these messages from the media. Another news anchor saying, oh yeah, and that stuff that happens down there, you know, below the belt. You can't even say the word vagina on television. <laughs> you can't, literally cannot. FCC will fine you for saying the word vagina on television. Oh, really? What? Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. So, so again- That's anatomy. Was, I know. It's oh. like saying toe, but no, it's a sexual body part. So that's what I mean. What is normalized in this culture is what we accept as correct when we're children. We don't question below the belt. We don't question why it's good that teenagers shouldn't have sex. We don't question why there's more representation of 
white Eurocentric looking people on the television show than, than a black person. We don't question that. We just implicitly accept it because this is a social norm. That's the thing to understand that the dominant culture sets the values of that culture. And because this culture is a result of colonization, Mm-hmm. The rules and regulations in order for colonization to function, it had to suppress the indigenous people and other them. They're not human. They are other. Mm-hmm. Books about the colonization of America. Nobody lived here until Christopher Columbus came. The indigenous people are nobody. They're not human. Mm-hmm. They're not people. They're nobodies. Only we white Europeans are human. We are people. Everybody else is other. Yeah, I mean, you're touching on the media aspect and the media is quite honestly good at um, getting what they want. Yeah, and, and what I'm trying to point out with the media is how it informs us. Mm-hmm. It is right. a tool, and we live in a media age, so we're absorbing these messages unconsciously, subconsciously. Right. It's, it's a, happening it's below the level of awareness. Well, and also, historically, we've always focused on Black and Indigenous people of color when we're talking about race, instead of actually look at the institution that's keeping the oppression and racism alive, which is whiteness and white privilege. Absolutely. In regards to dismantling the structures of white supremacy, the people in power who benefit from those structures are the ones who need to be having the most conversation about it. We who who are the recipients of the abuse of those systems know that they're operating. If you're curious about the ways that they're operating, you know, and you're willing to actually hear that, you can ask people of color. But otherwise, I agree with Robin D'Angelo and many other scholars of, of, of white supremacy in America. The dominant culture is the one that needs to be having the conversation about how to change it. If you want to change it, you have to be honest. You, you benefit tremendously in having a system of oppression. And America, the United States, was founded on slavery and genocide. Mm-hmm. The very inception of the United States was one of genocide, killing the indigenous people, and then enslaving, kidnapping, murdering, raping an entire nation of other people. So that is how the United States was established for the last however many hundreds of years it's been alive. You know, when you're talking about changing the structure, you're actually talking about dismantling the entire constitution of the United States, which was written by and for white rich men. So, you know, you really have to examine, do I really want the structure to change? Because it means, in my opinion, it it means completely changing the entire structure of the United States. Right. So there's that. The other aspect, though, is that you cannot talk about racism at all without accounting for the generational trauma that has ensued as a result of these racist structures, these white supremacist structures. So you're talking about, you're looking at how trauma alters and changes DNA and creates a propensity for illness, mental, emotional, physical, sexual. You're looking at how trauma is passed down relationally in societies and the imperative of having a regulated autonomic nervous system in order to be able to regulate the nervous systems of your children when they're born. And trauma survivors who have unresolved trauma that's still trapped in their autonomic nervous system have a dysregulated nervous system and cannot regulate the nervous system of their children. An unregulated nervous system leads to illness, disease, dysfunction, mental, emotional, physical, sexual. So all of the symptoms of poverty and 
you know, racism and ghetto and all of that, those are all PTSD. Those are all symptomatic of trauma. And so it is a horrific injustice to have any conversation about race without taking into account the way the violence and abuse of that kind of system impacts generations. My family was destroyed as a result of racial trauma. I almost died as a result of the racism and the trauma I experienced as a child. So it destroys lives, it destroys families, it destroys generations, and it is irresponsible to have a conversation about racial equity or quality without taking to, into account the past 500 years of abuse that are still alive and active and operating in people's nervous systems today. I completely agree. Do you feel like that's starting to happen at all? The accountability and having the conversations and wanting to make the change. From my perspective, I live in Portland. It's actually quite white here in Portland. But honestly, in my circle of people, everyone that I've actually told about this book, White Fragility, has already read it, which makes me happy. It makes me happy to know that at least in my circle, this information is getting out and we can talk about it. And we can start saying, hey, let's start talking about whiteness and the effect of whiteness and how deep and consuming and violent it, it is, has been, and continues to be. Yeah. So do I think it's changing? I mean, I, I can just speak to my experience and what shows up on ra my radar. And I will say that since I've become educated about the realities of it and understood like, oh, my entire life experience has been a example of you know white supremacy and racism and all of that and trauma like oh since the light bulb has gone off in my head i actively have these conversations with the people in my environment so in that respect i would say yes what i see on you know in social media and twitter you know it really i think it really depends on the bubble that you live in so in the bubble that i live in yes there are some people who are having these conversations yes, there are some, I will, let me preface, there are some white people who are having these conversations. Mm -hmm. I can say, <laughs> oh, <laughs> people of color in America know what the fuck is up. It's not a big epiphany. So I would say in some spaces, yes, yes. I think the missing link though is for me, that is not happening in a lot of these conversations is what I just pointed out, the impact of generational trauma. And the person who brought that to my awareness, that component to my awareness was Dr. Joy DeGuri. I always butcher her last name. Um, but she wrote a book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Mm. And she outlined how so many of the, and she's a black woman, and she wrote the book for black people. She's like this, you know, I mean, I think everybody on the planet would benefit from reading this book. I've handed out to like many of my white friends, um, but she's very clear. She's like, I wrote this for black people so that black people can understand what the fuck is going on within yeah. them. Yeah. And so that really brought to my awareness um, how much of what we consider the norm in black culture, the stereotypes we see on television and all that in rap culture, all of that is post-traumatic stress as a result of unresolved trauma from slavery. You don't just heal from trauma. You don't just like wake up one day and like, oh, I'm trauma free. You actually need to apply methods to heal trauma. And nobody... <laughs> you know, at any point in American history, did any white person or US government say, oh, wow, you know what? We have fucked you up as right. a result of raping, abusing, and violating you and humanizing you for centuries. Let's give you some therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, no accountability at all. Yeah. Do you want to take us 
to your childhood a little bit? I mean, you touched on that for a second and it's okay if you don't want to, but I'm, I'm interested to hear more about your childhood. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share about my childhood. I think that it's um, given the skin that I'm in and where I was raised and the experiences I had, it's, it gives a, I think it's a unique perspective because we live in such a segregated culture, society. I mean, particularly when I was born, it was even, I, I don't know that segregation has actually changed that much, but <laughs> It was, it was potentially more segregated than it is now. And so because I got to walk in both worlds, I think I've got a unique viewpoint on it. So yeah, we can go there. Absolutely. In short. I'd love to hear that viewpoint. Yeah. So do you have anything specific or should I just start wherever? Well, I mean, particularly I was listening to what you were saying and you said I almost died as a child as a result of, of racism. And, you know, I don't know if that meant where you were living, your environment or from DNA trauma that you have in your body. So I was just curious to jump into that a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, it was cumulative and it, and it wasn't when I was, a ch I mean, I was 19 or 20. So, you know, in that respect, I was a child, but young, but it was the accumulation of trauma throughout my life. So, I mean, because of the work that I do, I'm very immersed in understanding developmental trauma and um, how that changes the brain in a detrimental way. And so because of that, you know, I, I always, my view is always, it didn't start with me. I look at my parents and my grandparents and like the lineage of trauma and can trace the symptoms of it, the impact of it. And so my father was black and my mother was white and they got married in like 1969-ish something, you know, as soon as interracial marriage was legal. And I see how racism destroyed their, their marriage. And in that way, you know, me as a, you know, needing a two-parent home to flourish and grow in, um, how, it, how that was devastating in and of itself. So the, str the stress and the overwhelm and the, you know, I keep using the word trauma, but like, I mean, it, it's like overwhelming trauma, not just like, oh, a little bit like, oh, I had a bad experience. It's like overwhelming systemic trauma that my father experienced as a black man in America with no resources for mental health, emotional support, or even understanding what was going on, he ended up taking out his frustration and agony and pain and unwellness on my mother. So I grew up in a home of domestic violence. And I would suspect that some of that rage that was directed towards her as a white woman was directed towards whiteness in general. It was how he fought back. I, in a way that was a strategy that was in, extremely ineffective and destructive, but that's very typical, right? And my father grew up being verbally and physically abused and then abused by the culture, abused by his parents, abused by the culture, like abuse is just everywhere, particularly as a black man. <laughs> so my early childhood experience was growing, watching my father beat my mother and my father beating me and my mother leaving in the middle of the night in terror packing us kids up in the car and driving us away while my father was asleep because she was afraid he was going to kill us. Mm. So oh that in and of itself is traumatic, a traumatic, ex like for a child to grow up like that Absolutely. is an adverse childhood experience. Toxic stress is going to 
impair brain development, all kinds of intense developmental trauma. So there's that. And then I go my entire life. I, I experienced, you know, because of the, because of being a very light skinned black person growing up in very white middle to upper middle class neighborhoods, I was a target. And we have conversations in the society around the impact of bullying. I would say that racial abuse is above and beyond bullying. So as a young child, five years old, six years old, seven years old, eight years old, I had white boys telling me that they would kill me because I was an ugly N-word, chasing me home from school, saying that they're going to beat me and cut my head off. When I was a teenager, 13 or 14, I used to walk home. I lived in Northville, Michigan, which is like a very affluent high-end place. Mm, yeah. That's what I experienced. There, I was the, there was one other black person in our school, a boy, and then there was me. And that was it as far as diversity. I mean, there may have been some Eastern Indian people. There may have been some Asian people. I don't remember, but I know as far as having access to black people, that one boy and me, that was it. And that was most of my experience growing up with my white mother in these neighborhoods. We often lived in neighborhoods where there were no other people of color or specifically there were very few or no other black people. So I, I was given this message my entire life from various sources explicitly and not explicitly that there was something wrong with me because of my race. Um, and it accumulates. And, and because of, you know, a, a lot of these traumas were de developmental, I was never able to build and foster a strong sense of self, an empowered sense of self. As I said, I took, because I was already wounded and fractured and traumatized by growing up in a household of domestic violence and not having my biologically based needs for connection met effectively, I already was unprepared for the type of assault that I would experience later in life due to my heritage. So not understanding what was going on, we didn't have the understanding or the verbiage or, or the context for conversations around trauma in the 70s and 80s. Like it just wasn't a conversation. Trauma was like war or a car accident. It was not like you just, they just didn't know. So I had no support, I had no resources, and I had, I had no antidote or counter belief to the inherent programmed core understanding that I was defective because I was black. So by the time I was 19, 20, I was a fucking mess. I was suicidal. I mean, I had been suicidal like for years and years and years, like lots of, you know, quote unquote failed suicide attempts. But when I was, I can't remember exactly, 19 or 20, I actually seriously attempted to take my life. I sat down with a razor blade and a gallon of wine and some herbal ecstasy and some Tori Amos. <laughs> I proceeded to, <laughs> and my cats, <laughs> which didn't make everything better. <laughs> and I proceeded to slice my wrists oh. and work up the courage to mm. make the final cut that would lead to my death. And I was there bleeding and crying and writing my suicide note mm. for hours and hours and hours and hours. And I finally had worked myself up to the point where I was going to actually do it. And I couldn't, and I didn't. And obviously ever grateful for that. Cause that was the deepest bottom that I think anyone could go to and survive. And I did. Did, but um, I trace all of that back to the accumulative trauma of being a person of color in America. Oh, baby. I'm, 
my heart is just so sad. I mean, I, I told you this before. I think we all need to be researching and reading and remembering and changing and learning because I just don't understand how people can treat people like this. <sighs> I'm so sorry. And I'm so glad that you survived and you're a survivor and you're here to talk about it and you're here to help affect that change. And I know it's not your job to do that. I am very well aware of that. I am totally willing to do my work, you know, and I'm going to continue to do my work. And I'm so grateful that this conversation sparked between us because I thought I was doing work before and I wasn't, I wasn't doing enough. There's so much more to be done. And so thank you. Thank you for being such a beautiful soul that cares deeply and authentically. So, yeah. And I'm grateful to have this conversation too, because I, I'm in a place of privilege. I have a lot of access to whiteness and I have benefited from it. I'm very light skin. I'm very accessible as a person of color, as a black woman. I have a lot of privilege and growing up biracial and growing up with my, my mother has given me access to privilege and resources and whiteness. And so I do think it is my job to have this conversation. It's not my job alone as a black woman, as a person of color, or biracial woman, whatever category <laughs> I get to fit into. It's not my job alone. I'm comfortable having this conversation with white people and not all black people are because of the segregation and because, of, because they're not safe having this conversation with a lot of white people or right. their experience being black in the white world has informed them that they're not safe. Mm -hmm. And the pain of like one more white person saying, I don't know, are you sure? Is enough to drive them fucking batty. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, again, it's cumulative. And so I think it's easier for me to have these conversations with white people because I'm so comfortable with whiteness. There's some things in white fragility that I, I really wanted to bring up because for me, I felt like they were aha moments and I felt like, oh, this would be really great to explore them and talk about them. So I just, I wanted to read a couple of things if that's okay. This one said, yeah, let's uh, do. prejudice is a prejudgment about another person based on the social groups to which that person belongs. Prejudice is foundational to understanding white fragility because suggesting that white people have racial prejudice is perceived as saying that we are bad and should be ashamed. We then feel the need to defend our character rather than explore the inevitable misunderstanding about what prejudice is that protects it. Discrimination is action based on prejudice. Racism occurs when a racial group's prejudice is backed by legal authority and institutional control. I mean, she talks so deeply about this paradigm here, and, I, and, and it's the reality. She talks about the reality of what we're living, but most of us are so far removed from that because of the seed that was planted when we were a kid or because we're so scared of being, it's the binary good equals not racist, bad equals racist. And she's saying that that's one of the biggest problems in what's happening today is that that makes us disassociated from change and from learning more and being involved and getting in the conversations that actually create the change because we think, well, we're good, so we're not racist. We're not bad like the racist people that we see on TV and the sensationalism of it. And she says that's where the danger is. So I think that's really important to yeah. highlight. 
I agree. And, and one of the ways in which I've had this conversation with other white people I know is just accepting that the entire culture is a racist culture. It's rooted in white supremacy. White is right. White is primary. That's just reality. It's not personal. It's right. not a personal like, like judgment of you. It's just the air that we breathe. And then the other example I like to give people is that, you know, I did a Harvard, one of those tests that you can do online to test your implicit bias. So, you know, you don't know how the test is going to go down. You're just following the rules and whatever. And then based on your responses, they give you a score on your scale of, you know, how white supremacist you are. And so I'm thinking that it's like, like in my mind, what they were testing was very different than what actually they were testing. They were testing the speed of your responses to certain cues. So while I'm doing the test, I'm thinking, oh, holy, like I'm showing how like, you know, balanced I am as a biracial person. My score came up so high on the white supremacist thing in regards to implicit bias. So what it said, and it's, it's embarrassing, but what it said is that I have a clear and overwhelming preference for whiteness. Really? I'm a biracial woman. I study and, and, and read about racism. I am affected horribly by unexamined toxic whiteness. And this test, which tests implicit bias, implicit meaning it's, it's not rational, it's not intellectual, right. it's, it's coded into you, yeah. tests me that my implicit bias is a clear preference, like high, not just a little bit, but like up there with like close to white supremacy, like wow. KKK. That wow. was the level of my implicit bias for whiteness. So I use that as an example, even though it's fucking soul wrenching and embarrassing, I right. use it as an example of how our culture conditions us, programs us systemically to prefer whiteness in ways that we would not even understand, even as black people, right. even as people of color. Yeah. And I'm not aware of it. I'm not aware. I don't know. Right. But it's there. And so you don't have to feel guilty. Everybody who grows up in America is racist because it's a racist culture. Right. It's not personal. Yeah. But I think that that really starts to break down those. We're so defensive. Humans are so defensive, you know, and it just breaks those defenses down and like, wait a second, there's a lot that we need to be talking about here. And it's not this, this isn't about you. You know what I mean? Because we're like, oh, we're being attacked. It's about us. Wait a second. No, this is about a much, much grander population and scale and people. It's about, not about you. It's about you affecting change, but it's, you're not the victim here. Like we need to be talking about that. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you, Lori, in that the conversations about it are, are, are the pathway to healing. That is the biggest thing I think, you know, I, I got from Robin D'Angelo and then other authors on the topic of racism. It's like when a person of color trusts you enough to talk about race, listen, right? That's your job is listen and give empathy. Imagine what it would feel like to have that experience. Don't question or in your job isn't to validate or invalidate their experience. Your job is to listen and have empathy. And, and understand another human experience. Right. This is about our humanity. Mm -hmm. That's what this is about. And in the United States, black people were robbed of their humanity because you cannot enslave humans. It's against Christian values. So black people were systematically dehumanized. Their humanity was erased in order to commit the atrocities against them that 
we're being committed for profit. So when we're having conversations about race, we're having conversations about human equality, human rights. That's what the conversation is about. You know, I've noticed, especially over the last few days, because I've really spent a lot of time on this and last, it's, I've been spending time on it for a while now, but I just keep thinking way back. I just keep thinking back to when humans thought that it was okay to oppress other humans. But I just keep thinking back to those people. And I'm horrified that humans just decided to make other humans less than or seem less than in order to gain power. Yeah. I mean, I, I just track the trauma. I mean, that's, you know, the, it, the trauma, trauma research shows that the human brain and nervous system is wired for connection. Like we're, we're wired. The human foundational human blueprint is love. <laughs> it really is. Mm-hmm. And so anything that interrupts that or is other than that is an expression of trauma. You know, I watch historical dramas and just track this lineage of trauma through Northern Europe and then how that trauma was then perpetuated upon people of color all over the planet through colonization. But also, you know, an argument that people make about slavery is that, oh, well, every culture or many cultures had slavery. Well, slavery has never been practiced anywhere else on this planet the way it was in the United States. In other cultures, when people had slaves, the slaves were still people. (laughs) American chattel slavery is the only system in which the subjects were literally robbed of their humanity. And it was the most long lasting. It was 500 years. And on top of the slavery in the United States was Jim Crow. Maybe all of that together is the 500 years. I'm really bad with my timelines, but it was centuries, right? It's not like, oh, that was like, you know, for a lifetime. It's centuries. Again, accumulates. So it's a different expression um, in the realm of slavery and perpetuating atrocities against other human beings. And it's also, you know, one of the ones that was the most systemic, like I said, the entire society, the entire culture, the entire constitution of the United States was rooted in these beliefs that black people are not human. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a horrible legacy of humanity. And I truly believe that the root cause of it is trauma. Yeah. The other thing that I wanted to read, it says, if you stand close to a birdcage and press your face against the wires, your perception of the bars will disappear and you will have an almost unobstructed view of the bird. If you turn your head to examine one wire of the cage closely, you will not be able to see the other wires. If your understanding of the cage is based on this myopic view, you may not understand why the bird doesn't just go around the single wire and fly away. You might even assume the bird liked or chose its place in the cage. But if you step back and took a wider view, you would begin to see that the wires come together in an interlocking pattern, a pattern that works to hold the bird firmly in place. It now becomes clear that a network of systemically related barriers surrounds the bird. Taken individually, none of these barriers would be that difficult for the bird to get around, but because they interlock with each other, they thoroughly restrict the bird. While some birds may escape from the cage, most will not, 
And certainly those that do escape will have to navigate many barriers that birds outside the cage do not. And I think this description of the interlocking forces of oppression as a birdcage really helps get us out of our limited view to see the systemic oppression as a whole. Because we become yes. so, so myopic in our own view. And she talks a lot about how it's not based on individuality. We have to look at the systemic oppression as a whole because it's so big and it's so powerful and it's so deep seated into our subconscious. Like you said, like the messages are constantly being received and those messages are very powerful. I think really when we start getting out of our own little eyes view, we can start to be like, wait, this is so much bigger than what I ever thought. And I actually can affect the change. I can actually be a part of the change when I see that it's not just my bubble here in my world. Absolutely. And I think, the, you know, my opinion for transformation and healing is it always starts here first. I can't change anything out there unless I've changed. And so that's exactly what you're describing. You're coming across this information that's awakening you. You're having this transformation. And then you get to see the pattern as it shows up in society, you're like, oh, that's racism. Oh, that's white supremacy. Oh, I know what that is. And there's huge joy and celebration in being able to identify toxic patterns. Right. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's liberating. That's freedom. Oh, that's a toxic pattern. I don't have to engage in that. Right. right. And it happens both inside and outside. Right. And I think that's so helpful the way that you just described it, because when you do see a toxic pattern, that's how you affect change by not engaging in it and by speaking up and by shifting that pattern, by creating that change. And we can do it on an individual level for the greater good or the greater. Thank you. <laughs> That's the word I was looking for. And so I, I do feel liberated. I read just recently, I read that book. I listened to a fantastic Ted talk that I will put in the show notes. I listened to, um, not, what was it called? Seeing White? Have you heard that series on On Scene Radio? It's fantastic. I mean, just really getting into the history. Race isn't real, but racism is real politically and socially. Biologically, you know what I mean? When you actually, they start talking, you know, I'm just like, wow. I mean, I can't even remember what I learned as a kid. Like, I literally can't put my mind on specifically learning anything close to what I'm learning now, you know? So there's so mm -hmm. much information out there and it, it is very liberating to feel like we can do something. We can, you know, have conversations. We can do our homework. We can learn. We can be vulnerable. We can own up to our mistakes and then we can learn from them. You know, I think people are really scared of making mistakes and we're human. We all make mistakes, but it's how much do we want to change that and how much do we want to get better? Exactly. Exactly. We, we have to be aware in order for anything to change. We have to acknowledge a, that there's something to change and learn to understand it and then begin the healing and transformation process in our own minds. And so, you know, you can change laws, but you're not necessarily going to change the consciousness of a human being. Look how many, you know, they're all civil rights and all that stuff. And now because of toxic white belief systems, structures in the government, now they're trying to erase civil rights protections for people of color in the United States, right? So you have to, you have to change the mindset. You have to change the mind first in order to change the actual structure. The structure is a reflection of the mind. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's really important to look at who are the people that are the lawmakers? What kind of experience exactly. are they having? We need to have a very diverse array of people making laws and affecting policy that have especially experiences of racism. We need to be changing that with our votes. We need to make sure that all voices are heard and that we aren't having one particular group of people making the laws for everyone. That's been our entire history. Exactly. A hundred, absolutely a hundred percent. I've often looked at government. I, I love watching the news now. It's one of my new fun things that I do to trace the dismantling of democracy in the United States that's happening right now. Um, And I've often thought when I'm looking at, you know, the Senate and the Congress, I'm like, why not so much the Congress anymore. Right. But why, why are rich white men the only people who get a voice? Um, And absolutely the way to affect change systemically or structurally is to change the people who are creating the structure. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You have to put people in place who have the, awareness and and lived experience to effectively address these issues like if you're building a house you're not going to have a a seamstress come over to lay the foundation of your house that's insane Mm -hmm. you want to have somebody who specializes in cement and laying foundations to lay the foundation right it's one small way that we can actually really do something to make sure that everyone is represented and that everyone's interests are being taken into account and that we have laws in place to protect people and marginalized people and, and um, minority people. But, you know, that's just saying that word as I'm, as I'm talking, that was another point that I feel like we kind of touched on, but it's like, when you read books or you hear things, and I think that you talked about this, it's that the normal is the whiteness, right? And then everyone else is talked, in, talked about in a different way, as if it's not the norm. Yeah, everyone else is other. Yeah, so just me, when I just said that word, I actually had like a visceral reaction because it doesn't feel right. I don't, like, it doesn't feel okay to say that, to describe a group of people as minority because I don't believe people are, any people are minority when you look at the word, right? When you hear the meaning of the word. So Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. And then if you look planetarily, brown people are the majority. There's more brown people than Northern Europeans, but brown people adapted to be able to harness, to be able to handle the sun. (laughs) I mean, literally population wise, there are more people of color, non-white people on the planet then there are white people on the planet. So we're actually the majority in all of our diversity. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like I have a reaction because it just doesn't feel right. You know, and as a hypnotherapist, you know, words matter. Words have a lot of meaning. They have a lot of power. The more that we pay attention to that, the more that we are authentic and we are in reality and we're not just feeding into this system that's always been, that hasn't been well. That is not a good system that has hurt many, many people violently and for years upon years upon years. So, um, Davey, I am so this, I'm just, I'm really grateful. I'm so grateful for you to have, I know I said this already, but I'm so grateful for you to have this conversation with me and I'm happy to just start to plant new seeds. I think that the more that we do that and the more that we do that really with our children, that's going to affect so much that we don't have to 
backtrack and, and clear out all of the, all of this implicit bias that just keeps getting fed into us. So we really need to be looking at, like I said before, and this came from that TED talk is don't wait for children to ask, start having these conversations beforehand. They're the future and they're, you know, we can, we can really be positive with them. Do you have anything else you want to say before we go to our last question? Anything else to add? No, I guess I would just encourage all of us to actually study this. I mean, I, you know, the thing that is, that is most disappointing in trying to have conversations with white people and, and other people of color who want to ignore racism, because there are some of those, is how uninformed and uneducated their opinions are. So when, as a, as a person of color, when I'm speaking about racism, I'm speaking from an informed perspective and not just my personal experience, but I've actually taken the time to research and try to understand from people who actually study this, mm -hmm. the ins and outs. It's like, you know, if I was having a conversation with a brain surgeon about brain surgery, and they're telling me, you know, this thing, I'm like, no, no, I, I think you're wrong. I don't believe you. I, I, don't, I don't know if what you're saying is true. But they not only have the lived experience, but they also have the education to back up what they're saying. So right. it says a white person trusts that if a person of color is talking to you about their experience of race, they know what the fuck they're talking about. Number one. Right. Number two, you know, my question, if someone wants to engage with me on the topic of race, I'm like, well, how many books have you read about it? Because I'm not about to waste my time as a person of color having a conversation from an informed standpoint. And not that I'm an expert at all. I've read some books by experts that have informed my level of expertise that I have, as well as my lived experience. So I'm not going to waste my time as a person of color having a conversation with, with a white person about their opinion. I don't really care about your opinion on racism. That is irrelevant to me. I'm giving you facts. I'm giving you documentation on this topic and you want to come at me with like, oh, well, you know, my opinion is different. Well, this isn't about opinions. This is right. about reality and truth and factual information that can be proven. And so if you're going to have a conversation with a person of color about race, learn, <laughs> educate yourself first so that you're actually having this conversation from an informed perspective like you did before having this conversation, you read, you educated yourself, you, you know, understood so that instead of challenging my view, you could understand and relate to my view. That is the biggest gift you can give to a person of color is read about whiteness, read about toxic whiteness, learn yourself so that you can be a better human to the people in your community. Absolutely. I mean, I'm just going to say again, what this did for me by having this conversation with you because I decided to do a lot of research very quickly and it has opened, I, I mean, it has been an emotional journey, but it has definitely opened up a fire in me that I didn't have before that I want to make so much more change than I ever was before. Even if I was do, if I was doing anything before, like it's going to be on such a different level now. And there's so much great research out there. There's so many great books and I'm going to have, so I'm going to have them in the show notes. I've already mentioned a few of them and what you've mentioned, I'll have in the show notes too. So just look below <laughs> this podcast and you can already look at some fantastic knowledge and education right there. And I can guarantee you it will change your life. 
I'm just excited to talk more about whiteness, quite honestly, because I feel like I, I can absolutely talk about that and I can absolutely make change about that. And the more I get informed, the bigger change I make, the quicker, because this cannot, we need to make change fast. Like it has been way too long, way too slow. This is horrific. It is humanity. It is, we have these lives here on, in this human form so briefly and to have so much pain and violence and trauma is just, it's not okay. This is one way that I can, you know, start to do something to get more knowledge and information out there. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. That's absolutely correct. Yes. So let's head on over to our last question. Who would your dream guest be and why? You mean on this show or my show? On this show. <laughs> on this show. Dream guest. I think along this topic, I would say Dr. Joy DeGure, DeGray, De, I think it's DeGray. I don't know how, to, <laughs> it's on her book. So you'll see it on I, her book. Don't, don't tell her that I butchered her last name. She's actually in Portland. So you might actually be able to book her. Oh, nice. Okay. Wow. Maybe she works at the Portland. Yes. That would be great. my dream guest. Talk about post-traumatic slave syndrome. Okay. Yeah. Um, she'll be in the show notes for more information on that for sure. <laughs> so, you know, I'm going to say, as I was doing some research, I'm going to say my, the automatic response for me, for my dream guest along in this topic was Rosa Parks. And so I started doing some research, but then I was listening to some podcasts and I started hearing more of history that I never even knew. And so I'm going to add two people, two other women onto that dream guest list with Rosa Parks. And that's oddly more and Gertrude Perkins. And they both came before Rosa Parks. And it was because of their actions and what they did that actually made the Montgomery bus boycott as successful and large as it was. And it was because of what led up to Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on that bus on that day. And these two women were a huge part of that. So I encourage anyone and everyone to uh, read more about these amazing, powerful women and what they did for the civil rights movement, because it was very, very inspiring to me. And so I would love to talk to all three of those women if that was possible. Oh, just like my the feeling in my heart um, for those women is so just gratitude and awe and some people are so special in their conviction and their bravery and their courage and it's just mind-blowing to me what how powerful people can be put their body on the line right i mean their entire lives yeah. on the line and so for us to read about whiteness is minuscule piece of what we can be doing to make this change and and honor the great change that they affected and what they did and then their courage and bravery yeah davy oh, my gorgeous friend i'm so happy to spend this time with you and i thank you for your care in this conversation i am always just going to do my best and I know that I'm going to mess up and I'm going to keep learning and keep asking questions and I'm going to keep trying to do my best. So I thank you from this side for being there with me um, in this conversation where I, I am trying to do my best and trying to make change. 
Here, here, sister. I love you and I support you. I love you so much. You are absolutely amazing. So, oh, I'm sorry. Let's plug. Let's plug. Sorry. Um, where can people find you? Yeah. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, I am the uh, founding person and co-founders as well um, of the first and only government accredited school for Tantra holistic sexual healing. And so what that means, a lot of people have a misperception that that means we're going to like you know, massage your genitals and rub you. Actually, we teach, we, uh, we train coaches and practitioners. Um, and so in our sessions uh, that our graduates, our uh, instructors uh, offer, um, they offer uh, meditation, uh, yoga, uh, breathing practices, and um, sexual healing practices that are demonstrated on anatomical models. So it's a very accessible way to learn Tantra, fully clothed, the healing power of Tantra, which actually in the tradition that I have studied and trained in is a holistic healing modality. That's what it is in this particular tradition. Other traditions have other viewpoints. Um, so anyway, my website is AuthenticTantra.com. You can find us there in all of our programs. We have professional training programs. We have non-professional training programs. We have just stuff for the general public. We have lots of eBooks and free online workshops that you can learn more about these specific meditation practices that help rewire traumatized neural pathways in the brain. They're extremely effective, which is why I am where I am today. Um, so yeah, AuthenticTantra.com and you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the good places. Yeah. And you have a sex is medicine podcast that you do monthly, correct? I do. I forgot about that. Yes. Yeah, so my sex is medicine podcast really explores the int intersection between sexuality, spirituality, and how that relates to our personal growth and self-realization as human beings. And so I have amazing guests. Like my show is amazing because I have amazing guests on the show um, from so many different modalities. I have PhDs and academics and professors to shamanis, shamans and sex workers and the whole spectrum because it's all these viewpoints on how our sexuality um, is an integral part to our humanity. And we can't be truly fully whole and integrated as human beings if we have aversion to or we are in denial of our sexuality. Yes. Davey, you are doing such powerful work. I'm so grateful for you. You are changing the world, hon. I'm just, uh, you, I hope you all get to know her and uh, check, definitely check out that podcast and check out the website. She is one powerful, powerful goddess woman. So it'll all be in the show notes. And again, before we sign off, I just want to have gratitude for being here with you in this time and this light. And um, yeah, I guess until next time, right, babe? Until next time, my friend. Okay. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> and with that, let's normalize the struggles, celebrate the quirks, and lean into the light. From myself and Beezus the Brave. <coughs> happy Wild Heart Revolution, friends. Wow. I don't even really have words. That was powerful, beautiful, heart-wrenching needed mm.